following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Off and on, we've been in this series for the past few weeks called I Wish That Wasn't in the Bible. And what we've been doing is taking passages in the Bible that are among the most uh, uncomfortable, uh, disturbing, awkward, embarrassing, upsetting, confronting, whatever word you want to use, the stuff that we, we genuinely, many of us, just wish wasn't in there. Life would certainly be a lot easier uh, if it wasn't there. And you've probably got uh, some passages of your own that you can think of. We may, may or may not have dealt with those, but I, I deliberately wanted to do two passages in the Old Testament and then two in the New. So we've done uh, 2 Kings 2, uh, the story of Elisha and the bears, and then we did Psalm 137, that's Psalm of Vengeance. Uh, and then today we're going to switch over into the New Testament, and I want to do a teaching from the Gospels. I wanted to do this uh, when, we first, when I first mapped out the series. I wanted to do at least one passage that, that expressed the words of Jesus. Because Jesus said some things that are pretty difficult uh, and uncomfortable and awkward. And so I, I did a little, little scout through the Gospels and just tried to look at some passages that were maybe among the hard sayings of Jesus. These things often get called the hard teachings or the hard sayings of Jesus. And uh, found one that I think is pretty much it. Uh, you might have a different one, but this for me is really uh, the hardest thing that Jesus said, maybe the most confronting thing that he said in the gospel. So we're going to base ourselves in that text, and it's in Luke chapter 14, uh, verse 25. So if you've got a Bible, uh, paper Bible or electronic Bible or whatever you've got, open it up. Uh, book of Luke, a third of the gospels, third uh, one along, and we'll read these verses. Luke, of course, is part of a two-volume book in the, in the Bible, Luke and Acts, both written by Luke, and, and this is part one, deals with the life of Jesus, and then Acts picks up after Jesus uh, has been resurrected and the, the journey of the beginning of the church and the works of the apostles. So we'll read these as 10 verses in Luke 14, and then uh, we'll dive in, make some observations about it. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So this is pretty confronting stuff. Uh, And interestingly, the very next thing that Jesus goes on to say, you get into Luke 15, and it's one of the most lovely chapters in the Bible. That's the chapter where you have the parable of the prodigal son. That's this wonderful parable. We all love that one about God's grace God's mercy, God, this loving Father who opens his arms and welcomes us home. But remember, just before that, you get this. 
just before the most loved chapter in the Gospels, maybe, you get one of the most direct, one of the most confronting and challenging where Jesus puts some pretty high demands out there about what it means to be a disciple of his. And he makes a couple of statements here that are particularly awkward. The first one was right at the beginning of that passage where he says, unless you hate your mother and father and come and follow me, you can't be my disciple. That's pretty difficult. Uh, Does that mean that you need to sever your family ties before you become a follower of Jesus? Because if so, it sounds like the kind of thing that we would associate with a cult, doesn't it? Really, I mean, that's the kind of thing that actually happens uh, or happened in cults like the Jonestown cult. People had to cut off family ties if those family members weren't part of the cult. That's the kind of thing that happens in those situations. Uh, And yet Jesus here seems to be saying some words that are eerily reminiscent of that. And then he makes that statement, uh, those of you that don't give up everything that you have can't be my disciples. So we also need apparently to take a vow of poverty if we want to become followers of Jesus. We need to give up every single earthly possession. Can't even sell them on trade me. You got to give it up and then you can come follow Jesus. So this is tough. I mean, this is going to make evangelism very difficult. Yeah, this is going to make the work of Bible League International very difficult. You got to tell people you want to become a Christian. You got to first of all go tell your family you hate them. And then you've got to give up every earthly possession that you own, every single thing, and then you're good. Then you can come be a follower of Jesus. That's all. Just a very low bar. And this is why this passage is called one of the hard teachings or the hard sayings of Jesus because of this. Now, let me put this in a little bit of a broader context for you in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this, this teaching of Jesus, it occurs in the context of a journey. A lot of Luke is built around a journey. And uh, Jesus, back in chapter 9, has resolutely set his face for Jerusalem. And he's on this journey. It spans 10 chapters of the Gospel of Luke. That Jesus is traveling from Galilee in the north of Israel down to Jerusalem where he's eventually going to die. And so 10 chapters of Luke, a big chunk of the Gospel, is set in the context of this journey. And Jesus is teaching the crowds as he goes along this journey. He's visiting the villages. He's visiting the synagogues. And more and more people are coming out to listen to him. And they're attracted to his ministry, and they're intrigued by who he is, and they're wondering if this could possibly be the Messiah. So by the time you get to Luke 14, we're told that there is a large crowd that's traveling with Jesus. And Luke, who's writing this, uses this physical journey that Jesus and this crowd is on to talk about the spiritual journey of following Jesus. The whole thing is is like a metaphor for the spiritual journey of what it means to travel with Jesus, what it means to journey with Jesus, what it means to relate to him, what it means to be part of the kingdom of God that he's bringing about. And in this passage, what Jesus is doing in the context of that journey is he's talking about two groups of people, two groups of people within the one crowd that's around. And you might not have been able to tell much difference from the outside, but Jesus distinguishes between two types of people. The first group are the followers, or we could say the travelers, the ones that are journeying with him. And these are people who, they already have a certain level of commitment. They've already temporarily left their homes and families and businesses. They, they want to be part of this journey. They're part of the support group. They're traveling with Jesus. They're interested. They're curious. They're wondering, is he the Messiah? Is he the promised one? So they've got a certain level of attachment and commitment to Jesus, these, these followers. But Jesus now in this passage starts describing a different group of people. A group that's, that's moved in from the fringes right into the center of this movement that he's creating. And this is a group that he calls his disciples. Now, he's already got his 12 disciples. That's his absolute inner core. 
But they weren't the only disciples. Jesus invited anyone who wanted to become a disciple of his. That was, that was a wide open invitation. He invited anyone who wanted to to transition from being just a spectator to being a follower to being a disciple. And that's what he wanted for people was that they would make that journey, make that trip and eventually become disciples of his. And that's the heart of this passage is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the defining mark of discipleship, I'll say it right up front here, it's in verse 27. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The cross is the distinguishing mark that separates a follower of Jesus from a disciple of Jesus. You could say that a follower is just a disciple without the cross. The disciple is someone who has taken up their cross and is following Jesus. So then the question, of course, is what does that mean? What does it mean for us to carry our cross and follow Jesus? The best explanation I've heard of this is by a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a German pastor. He was a German pastor in the 1930s and 40s in the middle of the Nazi regime. And he was a vocal opponent of Hitler's government in, in an age, in a day when a lot of Christians weren't. A lot of Christians were just sitting back and not wanting to stick their necks out and just retreating back into the comforts of church life and Christian life. But Bonhoeffer and a group of others didn't do that. But he was an opponent and he was vocal about it. And he paid a price for it. It was a costly decision that he made. He was imprisoned by the Nazis. Eventually he was executed by the Nazis. He started an underground seminary. And 27 pastors and students associated with that seminary were arrested by the Nazis. And around that time of those arrests, Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's become a classic, a classic book on discipleship. I think because it's not just a general book about discipleship, but it's a book written out of the kind of struggle that he was going through in that situation, where he's wrestling with what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be a disciple in these awful conditions with the kinds of costs that went along with that sort of commitment, that sort of decision? And in this book, he's got a chapter on discipleship and the cross, and he just makes this simple statement that's really stuck with me. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that seems to me the best summary of what Jesus said when he said, if anyone doesn't carry his cross, he cannot be my disciple. Because to carry our cross means to die. That's what it means. It doesn't just mean to suffer. It doesn't just mean to go through hardship, although that might be involved. But it means a death. There is a death that's involved. And it's not necessarily a physical death, although, again, it may come to that. But it's a spiritual death where we die to ourselves. To be a disciple is, above all, to say, I'm dying to me. I'm dying to my selfishness. I'm dying to my idols. I'm dying to my agenda. I'm dying to my ambitions, my plans. And I'm living solely and purely for Jesus. I'm dying to every other attachment, every other attachment but Jesus. I'm dying to every other allegiance but my allegiance to Jesus. I'm dying to every other loyalty but my loyalty to Jesus. I'm dying to every other love, every other desire but my love for the Lord Jesus. He's all that I want is to know him and to be known by him. That's discipleship. That's the cross, is to say, someone once said, the disciple, the crucified man is facing in only one direction, 
He's not facing in a whole lot of directions. It's not about having split allegiances, split loyalties. It's to say, I'm only facing one direction now, and that's towards Jesus. My entire orientation in life is towards him. My entire goal, my entire reason for living now is that Jesus would live his life through me and that he would be glorified in my life. I'm facing in only one direction. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, as the old song says. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. That's the life of a disciple. Everything else laid down. Everything else surrendered except for Jesus. It's radical. And I think that's why Jesus says at the beginning, he says, if anyone wants to come after me. He, do, he never forces this on us. Never coerces us into this. If you want to remain a follower, you can remain a follower. But Jesus says, if you want to come after me, if you want to be a disciple, it, it means death. It means nothing less than death to everything else but me. See, I think we've got another way sometimes of conceptualizing discipleship. We've got a view of discipleship where being a disciple means that God's got to be first in my life. We kind of have this imaginary list where God's at the top, hopefully, and then there's whatever else underneath. So you've got family, you've got work, you've got church, hobbies, finances, whatever else it is. Well, we kind of got this list and other things may be shuffled around and we assume, well, what, what God wants from me, what he wants is to be number one on the list. And as long as God's at the top of the list, I'm good. Uh, I can do what I like, play around with the other things, but God's at the top of my list, so I'm okay. But that's a pretty faulty view of discipleship. I don't th you don't see in the Bible God saying, I want you to make me the top of your list. Or, uh, not, not, not even that he wants to be number one on a list of many things. Partly because you can have God at the top of your list and it doesn't necessarily affect the other things on the list. In a sense, you could do whatever you like with all those other things, but as long as God's at the top, you're okay. But that's not the way God works. And God never says, I want to be one of a whole lot of things. I mean, you imagine if a, if a husband came home and said to his wife, honey, I've got to confess something to you. I've had an affair. But I want you to know that you are still at the top of my list. You're still at the top of the list of women that I'm attracted to. Is, was she, is she going to be impressed? She doesn't want to be number one of a list. She doesn't want to be the first of many women in his life. She wants there to be no list. She doesn't want, God doesn't want us to have a list. Being a disciple means throwing away the list and saying God's the only one on my list. He's not my primary allegiance. He's my only Allegiance. That's why the Bible says, you are not your own. You've been bought at a price. That's the language of slavery. You've been bought at a price. Slave doesn't have many masters. It doesn't say, well, my master's the one of number, you know, however many. No, no, there's only one master. We can only have one allegiance if we're a disciple. And that's to Jesus. This is radical stuff. But this is what being a disciple means. Someone who's taught me a lot about being a disciple is someone I've never met, a guy called Keith Green. He's, a, he's like a hippie rocker from the 60s. And uh, Anna was really into his music when we were dating as teenagers. And someone gave me his biography. It's called No Compromise. And uh, that book just had a huge impact on me as a teenager, thinking about my Christian life and what kind of Christian I wanted to be. Uh, it really challenged me, and parts of that book have, have really stayed with me. Uh, because he lived it. He lived this. He lived it 
what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be passionately and wholeheartedly committed to Jesus uh, beyond everything else. And in the book, he talks about going through this process of laying everything down before God and just giving, in a sense, giving everything up before God, kind of like what Jesus talks about, unless you're willing to give up everything. And he wrote a song, uh, which is not one of his more well-known songs, but it's called, I Pledge My Head to Heaven for the Gospel. And uh, it really struck me as, as, a, as a pattern of what it means to be a disciple. He just goes through uh, the most important relationships in his life, and he lays them down. I'll read you the words of some of the words of that song. Well, I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel, and I ask no man on earth to fill my needs. Like the sparrow up above, I am enveloped in his love, and I trust him like those little ones he feeds. And then he writes a verse about his marriage relationship. Well, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel, though our love each passing day just seems to grow. As I told her when we wed, I'd surely rather be found dead than to love her more than the one who saved my soul. And then he talks in his book about this was the hardest, next one was the hardest verse to write. He wrote this with tears in his eyes. Well, I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. Though he's kicked and beaten, ridiculed and scorned, I will teach him to rejoice and lift a thankful, praising voice and to be like him who bore the nails and crown of thorns. I'm your child and I'm going to follow you. No matter what the cost, I'm going to count all things lost. No matter what the cost, I'm going to count all things lost. He's echoing there, of course, Paul's words in Philippians 3, where he says, I consider all things lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. They're hard words to say, hey, for anyone. To say those words, you know, in, in our own lives and in our own relationships, I pledge my wife, my husband to heaven for the gospel. Pledge my kids to heaven to give up their lives, not literally, of course, but to spiritually hand them over to God and say, God, these lives are yours. These relationships are yours. They're not mine. I never want them to be as important as you. I never want them to compete with you, to take the things that are most precious to us in our lives and go through a process of surrender. That's hard. But that's what Jesus calls us to do. That's what those words in Philippians 3 call us to do. I consider everything loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then Paul says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. You know that word garbage? It's actually a profanity in Greek. You didn't think there were profanities in the Bible, did you? And Paul uses one in Philippians 3. It's translated garbage, and that's a very nice translation. If he was writing today, he might have used another word. But he says, I consider everything, I'll say garbage, you fill in whatever word in your mind, garbage, compared to the surpassing joy, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, it's hard to say, and I think this is the difficulty of this passage, because it sounds like we're diminishing family, doesn't it? Sounds like we're devaluing things that are precious, things that are... Did Paul really consider his friendships garbage? Of course not. He treasured them. He loved them. Did he consider his, 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 his church friends and workers garbage? No, he valued them. It's not about diminishing those relationships. It's about elevating the Lord Jesus so that compared to our love for him, compared to our desire for him to be glorified in our life, everything else is just eclipsed. Everything else fades away. So it is like garbage. It is like refuse. It's like dung. 
because Jesus is so exalted, so elevated in our life. I wonder how easy it is for you to say those words. I I find it very, very challenging to think about the relationships in my life and to say, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ, that I may know. Can you say that? I consider my marriage garbage that I may know Christ. It doesn't even feel right to say it, does it? But it's not about devaluing your marriage. You love your husband, you love your spouse. But it's about lifting up Jesus so that he is so far above everything else in your life that compared to him, everything else is rubbish. Everything else is garbage. Can you say that, honestly? I consider this relationship garbage that I may know Christ. Compared to the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus, I consider this garbage. I consider my accomplishments in life garbage. Consider this closest relationship garbage compared to the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus. It's hard to say. It's radical stuff. When I think about people who are disciples who I know, I think about a woman in our church called Lani. She grew up in Indonesia uh, in a Buddhist family. She came over to New Zealand to study at university. She was in a class at uni with a Christian guy, shared his faith with her, and she became a Christian. And she knew, I think, what that would mean for her in her Buddhist home, especially with her dad, who said some incredibly hurtful things to her, uh, incredibly hateful things to her. And when she went back home to Indonesia after uni, he said to her, either you stop talking about your faith or you need to leave the home. And she wasn't willing to stop talking about her faith, so she left home. Um, Spent six months, I think, going from one bad living situation to another. But God was faithful, and by his grace, she's ended up coming back to New Zealand, working in a ministry, student life, and amazingly, uh, she's now mentoring young women who are facing similar situations of confessing Christ within families, where that's very, very difficult. And many of us have no idea what that's like. But uh, by God's grace too, she's also been significantly reconciled with her family. Uh, I think it's still hard, but there's been a lot of progress that's been made there. But, you know, Lani had to count the cost. I mean, Lani had to do what what Jesus talks about in that parable. You know, what man's going to build a tower without first sitting down and calculating the cost? And you imagine when she made that decision to become a Christian, knowing, thinking what her father would say, what it might mean for her, in her family, and yet she was willing to count the cost. She was willing to say, I consider everything else rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, knowing Christ, knowing his power in my life. And many of us will never be called on to make that kind of decision. And yet we are called to name the same name, Jesus, to face whatever consequences that means, and to take the things in our lives and to lay them down before Jesus in a process, a deep process of surrender. And that means simply taking everything in our life and just taking it to the foot of the cross, taking our 10-year plan, taking our 20-year plan, and saying, Jesus, I, I no longer have any plans of my own. My plans are your plans. It, it's still okay to put things in place in our life, but surrender means just saying, God, these are yours. I take my relationships, I lay them down. God, I just want you to be glorified in these relationships. I take the things that I've done and the things I think I'm good at and whatever accomplishments and I lay them down. God, I don't know whether you want these things for me or not. I just give them to you. I give them up. I just never want any of this to be nearly as important as you are in my life. We lay them down. It's a process of surrender. It's a process of submission, really. Bringing everything under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, when I think about my life, I think about Lani, 
I think about Keith Green, I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I feel really, really guilty. <laughs> I feel really inadequate. And, you know, even in this week, as um, I've been trying to get this message into my head, and I've been sick, and I've just felt like, why this week, God, you know? I, I have not been walking as closely with God as I would have liked to have been, and then I've got this message on discipleship of all things, you know, and I just honestly stand here, and I was just thinking this morning, what possible right do I have to stand here and talk to you about discipleship? Most of the time, I barely even feel like a follower. I just feel like a spectator. I can't even live up to my own version of discipleship, let alone God's. But, you know, I have found in this passage, it is incredibly challenging and demanding, but I've also found in here incredible hope and incredible grace, especially in this second little story that Jesus tells, which I've never really looked closely at before. But you look at verse 31. We just finished with this. He says, Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. What's funny about that is when you think about this situation, you've got a king with 10,000 men and another king with 20,000 men, so he's clearly outnumbered. I mean, if this king sat down and counted the cost and calculated whether he would be able to win the battle, he would surely conclude no. No, he couldn't. The other guy has got twice as many forces as he does. And I think Jesus maybe tells this story with a bit of a wink in his eye because he knows that we're all in that category. He knows that actually we're all that king. Who, that, that we, we all face a battle that is far too great for us. We talk about discipleship. We talk about counting the cost. And if we're honest with ourselves, none of us can do it. We are so inadequate. We fall so unbelievably far short. And what happens when we start talking about this stuff usually is we just feel absolutely guilt-ridden, just terrible about our lives, and we all go home with our tail between our legs. But I think that's why Jesus included this story here. And he, he throws in this beautiful phrase, and he says, if he's not able, in other words, if he's not able to win, what does he do? He sends a delegation while the other is still a long way off, and he asks for terms of peace. Isn't that great? And I think Jesus is winking at us, saying, guess who's done that for you? The great king has come to you, knowing you can never win this battle, and he's offered terms of peace. And those terms of peace involve the death of his own son, Jesus who suffered and died, and he took upon himself our failure to ever live up to what this passage teaches. Because God knew we just couldn't do it. He knew we don't have a hope of doing this. So Christ has taken our failure, he's taken all of our shortcomings, all of our hopelessness upon himself. The one true disciple, Jesus, the one who has fulfilled this, and the one who literally carried his cross for us, has then taken upon himself all of our abject failure to live up to even our own expectations of holiness, let alone God's. And so now we stand, those of us who belong to Jesus, forgiven, loved, freed, cleansed. And it's out of that place that we can pursue the life of disciples. It doesn't take away from the importance of discipleship. None of this takes away from the challenge of discipleship. But it means discipleship must start and end with grace. It is a work of grace from beginning to end. Unless it comes out of a living faith in Jesus, unless it comes out of the life of someone who's already been changed by the grace of God in their heart, it's, we're just doomed to failure. But out of that place, out of grace, we can begin to become what we already are, 
disciples. We can begin to pursue Jesus. We can begin to be conformed to his image. God loves us and meets us right where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He loves us too much for that. Grace never leaves us where we are. It takes us on by his grace, by his strength, day by day, pursuing the life of discipleship. Don't ever think that discipleship and grace are opposites. They're not. Discipleship is from first to last a work of God's grace in your life. It must be, or else it's not discipleship at all. So I ask you, as we finish this morning, and I I challenge myself with the same question, which group are you in? Which of these two groups are you in? Are you a follower of Jesus? Or are you a disciple of Jesus? And by the way, the distinction is not between Christian and non-Christian. Both the follower and the disciple are Christians. The follower is still following. You may come to church, you may serve Maybe go to a life group, might have been baptized. You, you can still be a follower of Jesus. You may be. You may have been a follower of Jesus all your life. You may have given your heart to Jesus, prayed the prayer, coming along to church, doing all kinds of things, serving the poor, but you may still be a follower for the simple reason that you might look inside your own heart this morning and you recognize there's one thing you've never done, and that's die. You've just never truly died. Never truly gotten to that point where you say, I'm crucified to the world, crucified to myself. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. You know, I just encourage you this morning as one who's on the journey, if you've never taken that step, that today Christ calls you to come and die, to come and die, to come and take up your cross and lay down your life. Because Jesus says, what does it gain you? You gain the whole world, you forfeit your soul. So I encourage you, Christ encourages you this morning to lay down your life and say, Jesus, I'm dying to everything but you. I live only for you. And all I want is for you to live your life through me. For you to live your life through all these other different things. For you to be glorified in my life and to outwork your life in me. That's all I want. That's all I desire from this day forward. Jesus invites you to come and to die. He's already taken up his cross for you and now he invites us to take up our cross and carry it by his grace. Let's pray together. Jesus, our spirit is so willing but our flesh is just so weak and we we desire to follow you, many of us. We desire to be disciples but we're just so weak. And we're so entangled in so many things and so tripped up by so many things. But I thank you, Jesus, that it doesn't need to be any grandiose gesture this morning. You're not looking for some dramatic statement. You simply invite us, Jesus, in the quietness of our heart to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The cross before me. The world behind me. No turning back. Though no one join me, yet I will follow. No turning back. So Jesus, we pray that by the strength of your spirit and the power of your grace, you would make us your disciples. Thank you for carrying the cross for our shame and our pain and our sin. Thank you that we are already forgiven. And now out of that forgiveness, Help us to love you 
with all of our lives. For Christ's sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.